0: The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here and Uh, Before we open uh, God's word this morning to, well, you can turn right now if you'd like to Romans chapter 13. That's the passage we're going to be looking at. But before we look at, let me just say on this day when uh, our culture honors uh, mothers and we uh, set this day aside, uh, I just want to say happy Mother's Day. And also I recognize that um, with all human relationships, including that of um, child and parent, that's those relationships can be filled with great joy but they can also be uh, filled with sadness um that there are probably some in our midst who um love being a mom and others who want to be a mom and have not become one yet or or maybe won't and and regardless of where we are um, we take great comfort in knowing that the lord uh, sees us and he is with us and uh, whether we have been parented well or whether we have been parented poorly, whether we um, have good relationship or bad, the, the goodness that we cling to is that our heavenly father is near to us, that he loves us in ways that uh, every earthly parent uh, cannot, um, right? And we can take great comfort in that. Um, I take great comfort in that. Kat and I uh, Comment uh, regularly about all the ways that we are messing our children up. I'm sorry, my children. Um, but we take great comfort in knowing that the Lord does not. Uh, he, he parents us exactly as we ought to be. And so, uh, so we can take comfort in that. Well, friends, uh, we are in Romans chapter 13 this morning. Romans 13, and this, if you were with us last week, you remember that we are in the section of Romans that commentators and theologians have often described as being the application portion of the book of Romans. So chapters 1 through 11 was primarily, not exclusively, but primarily focused on doctrine. Chapters 12 through 16 are focused primarily, not exclusively, on application. And so we're in the midst of that, and, and last week we said that as we are in the midst of this application section, as we are talking about what it is that we as believers, how it is that we are to live in this world, we must remember always that the foundation of our living is God's grace. It is his mercy and it is his kindness, right? That's what motivates us to live. So it's not the other way around. We don't live so that God would be merciful. We live because he has been merciful. That's what motivates every aspect of our lives. Not just when we're here together, worshiping as a corporate body, not just in those moments when we have our Bibles open throughout the week and we're reading the scriptures, not just in those times of prayer, but every aspect of our life is dictated and oriented by God. It is motivated by his grace and mercy, even the way in which we live as citizens in this world. And that's what Paul's taking up in Romans 13, what it looks like for us to live as citizens in this world. And he writes this beginning in verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. "'Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. "'Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come "'for you to wake from sleep. "'For salvation is nearer to us now "'than when we first believed. "'The night is far gone, the day is at hand. "'So then, let us cast off the works of darkness "'and put on the armor of light. "'Let us walk properly as in the daytime.'" not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask simply that you would be near to us, that you would help us, that you would guide and direct our time now. Be with the one who preaches and all those who listen so that you would be made much of and we pray this in christ's name amen well on december 3rd uh, 2010 i found myself that morning standing in the federal courthouse building in st louis missouri don't worry, I wasn't staying there because uh, I had been convicted of anything. I wasn't coming under judgment. I didn't stand before the judge trembling with great fear. No, on this December morning, I stood before this judge because I was becoming an American citizen. Most of you know I'm a Canadian by birth. My family still lives in Canada. But on this day, I, I stood to take my naturalization oath. My fingerprints had been taken, the bioscans had been done, the background check complete. I had been interviewed and examined and I had passed. And so now I took my naturalization oath. I said this, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen." And then it goes on, and I had to swear an oath that I would do things like support and defend the Constitution and bear faith and allegiance to the United States and serve in the military if needed and perform works of national importance when required by law. So I stood and I took that oath, and after I did, I had then thrown off the yoke of tyranny that is Canada. And breathed in the fresh air of American <laughs> civilization, right? Citizenship. In <laughs> uh, all joking aside, in that moment, I did become a citizen. And becoming a citizen, there were expectations that were put on me. I said some of them, right? To defend the Constitution, to work, job a job of national importance when required by law. There were expectations, but. But even though there were expectations, and even though I became an American citizen, I'm still a dual citizen. You see, America, as far as they're concerned, as far as it, the government, whoever is concerned, I'm American. But as far as Canada's concerned, well, I'm both. I'm still Canadian. And so I live with this dual citizenship. In fact, so do my children. They're all Canadian as well as American. In fact, Kat's the only one in our family who has one citizenship. Uh, we like to point that out to her, kind of make fun of her. She's not as great as we are, but, uh, but, but I live with this dual citizenship, right? That, that there's this kind of pull, this tension to the land of my birth and my adopted land. But because I took this oath and become an, became an American, the expectation is, is that when there is that tension, my allegiance will lie with the United States. And, and in all things, except for hockey and Putin, it, it really does lie with the United States. But I live with this dual citizenship, this tension in my heart. And the truth is, is that so too do you? Or at least you should. You see, because the truth is is that if you are a Christian here this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you know that you're your life is hidden in him, then you too are a dual citizen. The Bible, the New Testament, says we are citizens of heaven. That is where our ultimate citizenship rests. But we're also citizens of the United States, right? Or of Canada or of some other land, We are, what Augustine put it, we are citizens of the city of God, while also being citizens of the city of man. And because we are citizens of heaven, that's where our ultimate allegiance rests. So you may live in the United States, or one day you might move to Canada, or to Europe, or to Asia, to Africa, to wherever, to somewhere else in the world. But ultimately, you are always a citizen of heaven. And it's this heavenly citizenship that dictates and orients what our lives are to be like in this world. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 13. That's what it means. He's talking about what it means for us to be citizens of heaven, living as citizens in this world. And how we live is we are those who live under authority. That's actually how the passage began, right? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, that word be subject literally means submission. So we are to be in submission to the governing authorities over us. Now, now this is the passage that Americans and, and Westerners maybe don't feel the most comfortable with. Because we don't like submission, do we? We don't like to have to submit to someone else because we're about ourselves, right? Individual freedoms, and no one can impose their will upon us. And we only have our individual freedoms that we can invoke and we can bring up anytime we feel like authority is pressing in on us. But Paul says, submit to that authority, and this is consistent throughout the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter says, be in subjection to human institution, whether it be the emperor or the governor. In Titus chapter 3, we're told to submit to the rulers and authorities, and then here in chapter 13, be subject to the governing authorities. See, Paul and Peter Are telling us that we are to submit ourselves to the authorities because that authority has been put in place over us. That authority has been instituted by God himself. That's how verse 1 goes on, right? There is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So what we see from this passage is that ultimately God places the authorities in the place of power, of authority, of leadership. And they are there to exist. The governing authorities exist and have been put in place to be servants. Did you see it in verse 4? They are called God's servant. And in verse 6, ministers of God. You see, government has actually been instituted to reflect God's purposes. That when government is functioning the way it should, it's functioning to affirm, to reflect God's purposes. In verses three through four, to affirm what is good. In verses four through five, to punish what is wicked. And so Paul calls us, be subject. He tells us, as we live in this world, we are to be subject to the authorities over us. And how do we do this? Well, verse seven. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul says the way that we live in subjection to the authorities is pay taxes and honor them. Now, to show honor doesn't mean that the person we're showing honor to is honorable in of themselves. Right. I mean, it doesn't take us uh, very long or have to think very hard about uh, the leaders that we've had throughout our history and in the distant as well as the more nearer history to realize that sometimes people enter into positions of authority who are not very honorable. And yet we still show them honor, not because they are honorable in of themselves, but because of the office that they hold. It's kind of like in the miniseries Band of Brothers. So Band of Brothers, the story of the 101st Airborne Easy Company as they go through World War II. At the end of Band of Brothers, Major Winters is sitting in a Jeep. And as he's sitting there, a lieutenant, Lieutenant Sobel walks by him, and Lieutenant Sobel looks at him and moves on. Now, now you have to understand uh, some context to, to get where I'm going with this. You see, earlier in the miniseries, earlier in the story, before Easy Company went off to war, while they were in the midst of training, Major Winters was a lieutenant under Lieutenant Sobel. So, he was in subjection to Lieutenant Sobel, but through the course of the war, Major Winters, he he advanced up the scale, and he moved through the ranks, and he advanced faster than Lieutenant Sobel. Lieutenant Sobel remained a lieutenant. Lieutenant Winters becomes a Major. And now, Lieutenant Sobel's walking past this man that he once had authority over. And he looks at him in the Jeep, and he averts his eyes quickly and keeps walking. But Major Winter stops him, says Lieutenant Sobel, and he stops in his tracks because a major has spoken to him. He turns to the major, he looks at him, and Major Winter says, you salute the rank, not the man. And very quickly, Lieutenant Sobel went into uh, uh, his quick salute, and he moved on. You honor the office, even when the man or the woman inhabiting that office isn't necessarily honorable. That's what Paul's calling us to. We honor the office and thereby honor the person holding the office. We submit to their authority. We honor them. We pay taxes to them. And so what this means is that if you are a Christian here this morning... What this means is that as we live as heavenly citizens in this world, it means we're not going to stage revolt or revolution or insurrections that is not Christian. That's what that means. But instead, we are to live as subjects to the authorities God has put over us. Now, I imagine it's here where many of you are going, but what about when the authority is unjust? right? And that is a legitimate question. It's actually a really important question because there are times when the authority will be not just dishonorable, but actually unjust. Now, before we answer that question, we must remember the context in which Paul and the New Testament is being written, right? It's being written when Caesar ruled and when Christians were being actively persecuted. And when I talk about persecution, I'm not talking like they don't get a call to the White House anymore and, and their tax status is being threatened. They were being killed and imprisoned for their faith, like a persecution that we have no idea about, that we in this country has never experienced. And we should be thankful we have not experienced that. But it's in that context that Paul is writing that we are to be submissive to the authorities over us. So that's that context. And there are times, biblically speaking, that we are called to civil disobedience, civil disobedience. And it's when the authorities are requiring us to act contrary to God's law or are prohibiting us from obeying God's law. So for instance, think about the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh, the leader, right, the the king over Egypt, said that they should kill all the boys that were born, right? But the midwives disobeyed him because to obey him would be to go against God's law. Or think about in the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They wouldn't bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar because he was this pagan king. They would only give their worship to the true king. Or in Acts chapter 5 in the New Testament, John and Peter declared that they must continue to preach the gospel because they had to obey God rather than man. And so what we see is that there have been and there will be times when Christians will need to engage in civil disobedience. But we engage in civil, civil disobedience not because we've been taxed or because our candidate didn't get elected or because we don't like the person in power. We engage in disobedience only when, demanded, when we are demanded to give allegiance to someone other than Christ. Does that make sense? When we are being required to do something contrary to God's law or are being prohibited from obeying God's law, that is when we say, no, there is a greater authority than you. But apart from that, we're to live as citizens under authority. Our heavenly citizenship is demonstrated as living in this world under the authority God has placed up, uh, over us. Now, I know that there are still like a million questions, right? There are lots of questions. There's what ifs. There's what about this person and that sort of government and all these sorts of things. And, and it, to deal with all of them, we would need an entire uh, semester, right? So come, let's have a conversation. Let's talk. We can have more of this. But for now, what we need to see is that we live under authority. That's what it means to be heavenly citizens. But also our heavenly citizenship is demonstrated in living with our neighbors. And the way in which we live with our neighbors is with love. Did you see it in verses 8 through 10? Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he goes on and lists off some of the commandments. And Paul goes on and says, the commandments are filled with, fulfilled with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So what Paul is telling us is that as citizens of heaven living in the city of man, that we live with love. And we live with love to our neighbor. And if you were here with us last week, you remember I talked about um, briefly, I mentioned Jesus' parable, parable of the Good Samaritan. And how in the Good Samaritan parable, Jesus is telling us that not everyone is our brother or sister, but everyone is our neighbor. Not just those who think politically like we do. Or who think like we do socially. Everyone is our neighbor, and so we engage with them with love a Love that is guided by the law. That's what Paul says the one who loves another has fulfilled the law and they reminds us right? Do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not covet So the implications of what Paul is telling us is that if you disregard the law you actually hate your neighbor That that adultery stealing, coveting, right? Those are perpetrated against another. And so sinning is the opposite of love. So you see how Paul's not pitting law versus love or love versus law. We like to do that sometimes, right? Like some of us will, I'm about the law, right? We don't say it that way. We say I'm about truth. I'm about the truth and it doesn't matter how I communicate that truth. And it doesn't matter who I say it to or how I say it because it's true. But Paul says truth without love isn't really true. Well, some of us, we're not truth kind of people. We're love people, right? We're, we're love people. So I'm going to not uh, worry about that sin, that, that struggle. I'm not going to worry about what that person did because I'm about love. But Paul says that love without the truth is actually despising our neighbor. We can't separate the two, that they're actually together. They are joined together. God's law guides our love, and our love fulfills the law. That's what verse 10 says. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. So if we seek to obey the law without love, we actually disobey. And if we seek to love without the law, we actually despise. But as heavenly citizens residing in this world, we're to live with our neighbors with love. With love. And finally, with expectation. Look at verse 11. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. What Paul is talking about is the return of Jesus. That is the day that is at hand. The day of salvation that is drawing near. That is Jesus' day of return. And what Paul is saying is that we live with the expectation of his return. Because when he returns, our salvation will be complete. And so we live with expectation. And this expectation looks like, Paul tells us, waking up, casting off the works of darkness, walking in holiness. Right? Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Paul says that as we await for Jesus' return, the way in which we live is by putting aside sexual sins and sins against our neighbor and sins of our flesh. We put off disobedience and we put on Christ, right? Right? Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, throughout the New Testament, we were told to put on different things. In verse 12 of this passage, we're told to put on the armor of light. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to put on the armor of God, right? In Ephesians 4, we're told to put on the new self. And in Colossians 3, we're told to put on virtue. And here, Paul says, put on Jesus, And so the image that we're given is that we are robed in Christ. That he is our covering and our righteousness. And I say he's our righteousness because the way in which Paul contrasts putting on Jesus with the flesh. Did you see it? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That the implication of what Paul is saying is that when we are robed in Christ and his righteousness, we're going to turn away from the flesh. We're going to turn away from darkness and walk in his light. That the only way that we are awoken from our slumber and are able to cast off works of darkness and turn from the flesh and the world is to be clothed in Jesus. And this is what it means to live with expectation of his coming. That we want to be found when he comes. We want to be found walking in holiness. Putting aside sin and wickedness. When he returns, we want to be found clothed in Christ. And so we clothe ourselves in him today. Because his coming is one day closer today than it was yesterday. That every single day, we are one day closer to his return. And so we put on Christ today. We clothe ourselves in his righteousness. Right? Because he is the one who has lived as the perfect citizen of heaven. Right? When he dwelled on this earth, he lived under authority, didn't he? In John chapter 19, when he stood before Pilate, he said he acknowledged Pilate's authority in that moment and said it had been given to him by his father. He lived in perf- under perfect. He lived perfectly under authority, and Jesus loved his neighbor. He loved us. By giving himself on the cross and dying for our sins. And and he promised that he will one day return. Christ is that perfect citizen that we now are robed in. And so until he returns, we live with this tension. As dual citizens, we live with this tension. Being citizens of heaven dwelling in the city of man. We live under authority, and we live with our neighbors in love, and we live with the expectation that he is coming, because he is. He will one day return, and when he does, we will dwell with him in the city of God. And we will live under his perfect authority for all time. And we will love one another as ourselves, and that promise of expectation, it will be fulfilled. And so, friends, let us live as heavenly citizens in the city of man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have clothed us and robed us in Christ. And so we pray that we would put aside darkness and we would put aside the flesh and we would put aside sin and wickedness and instead we would walk in your light. And so lead us, we pray. Help us to live in subjection to the authorities you have placed above us. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves and help us to live with the expectation that you are coming soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make all things new. We pray this in Christ's name and God's people said together, Amen.